Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This is the art of charm. Learn everything you need to know to crush it in business, love, and life. Today we're talking with Cal Newport. We'll discuss his new book, Deep Work, and how focus can make you not only a more effective and more productive professional, but also a happier and more neurologically healthy person. Of course, we're gonna get into practicals on how to schedule deep work into your life, why it's so important, and what you can actually get rid of, the results might surprise you, in order to focus on what really matters. That's all coming up here on The Art of Charm. I'm your host, Jordan Harbinger. The Art of Charm brings together the best thought leaders, teachers, and exceptional individuals to teach you how to be a top performer in life, love, and at work. If you're new to AOC, we'd love to send you some top episodes and our toolbox where we discuss body language, nonverbal communication, persuasion, networking, negotiation, and everything else we teach here at The Art of Charm. Just text CHARMED, that's C-H-A-R-M-E-D, to 33444 or go to theartofcharm.com. We may not have all the answers, but we definitely have some of the questions. Here's Cal Newport. All right, Cal, thanks for coming back. I really appreciate your time. I mean, it's almost ironic given the title of your book, Deep Work, basically cut everything out that's not important. I will sort of read into that and say that coming back on was important enough to you to actually make it happen. So I'm flattered by that and I much appreciate it. Oh, sure. That's right, Jordan. I mean, Art of Charm is one of the few attractions that can pull me out of my monastic, deeply concentrated shell, I suppose. And I would love to talk about those types of shells as well here on the show. And for those of the AOC family that haven't heard the first show that we did with you, can you tell us what you do in one sentence? Well, I'm a computer science professor who also writes books. Nice. Okay. That's actually, you're underselling yourself a lot. The books you write are really good. Well, at least the ones I've read are not about computer science. They're about productivity and creativity, which few people, in my opinion, get right. It's either so woo-woo that you can't even identify what the hell the author is talking about, especially when people write about creativity, or it's so hardcore tactical when it comes to productivity which makes it dated because it's like, make sure your typewriter is in front of you at all times. And you're like, okay, how do I analogize this to 2016? Because the book was written 30 years ago. And so I really appreciated your latest book, Deep Work, essentially telling people not just to shut off distraction, but giving us different types of ways to focus deeply on creating things that actually matter. Can you define first though, deep work? Tell us what it actually means. Yeah, it's a new term I came up with for a very old concept, which is when you focus without distraction for a long period of time on a cognitively demanding task. That activity is what I label deep work. 
Does it have to be for your job, actually, though? Does this mean professional productivity, things that you do for money or for a living? I don't really care what the purpose. What's important for me to label something deep work is that it's getting sustained, unbroken attention and that it's getting your full cognitive energy. So, I mean, whether that's actually for a job you're getting paid for or for something else important in your life is somewhat orthogonal to whether or not you call the activity deep. Gotcha. Okay, I'm gonna have to Google that word. What was the word? Orthogonal? Oh, yeah, that's a... It's a mathematics term, a multidimensional vector that shares no points with another vector. It means, you know, unrelated. <laughs> Good, I'm not embarrassed about not knowing that then. Okay, cool. I was like, we're gonna have to edit out where I pretend to know what that means. But no, I think probably not even 1% of the audience knows what that means. So your book defines deep work as essentially professional activities performed in a state of distraction-free concentration that push your cognitive capabilities to their limit. And that's kind of the highlight is pushing your cognitive capabilities to the limit. They create new value, improve your skill. They're hard to replicate, which makes them higher value. And we're gonna talk about how to push your cognitive capabilities to the limit because as you state in the book, things that are really, really easy, shallow work essentially, non-cognitively demanding, logistical style tasks, performed while distracted, these don't create as much value and therefore are easy to replicate, or if they're easy to replicate, therefore do not create as much value, which makes your work and makes you less valuable inside an organization. So basically, if you're an overpaid secretary like I was first year of my quote-unquote career as a lawyer, where my secretary was a million times more valuable than me, actually, now that I think about it, you're so easy to replace that you and your work both have no value, therefore you're the first to go. So this isn't just about some sort of high level, get the most out of yourself. It's sort of like, hey, do you wanna survive and thrive in an organization at work or as an entrepreneur? You have to be doing deep work. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I completely do. This is about ruthless economics because the market is ruthless. If you are not doing something that is rare and valuable, it is not going to be valued much by the market and you're in trouble. So we have all this chatter out here about, well, it's important to have a brand online and serendipity and be connected and be on the network and you need to moderate your social media presence and, and be easily accessible. None of those activities are rare and valuable. None of them are something that a 22-year-old right out of college could not also spend his or her whole day doing. So if that's what's eaten up most of your time, you're in an incredibly fragile and somewhat dangerous position. It's only deep work, which is where you push your brain and your existing skills to their limit that you're actually producing real value, things that the market actually values. So in other words, no one's ever made a fortune being really good at answering emails or being really good at updating their Facebook feed. But there are definitely people who have made a fortune doing the deep work required to, for example, build the really complicated, innovative, distributed systems that run those type of services. That's the side of the ledger you want to be on, the person building things that's valuable in the market, not the person using the things that other deep workers built. I have to admit, I originally thought when I picked up the book before I read you know, the, even the first page, I thought, okay, deep work, this is some sort of weird nostalgic affectation, as you call it, of writers from back in the day, or the older generation has romanticized this. Like, I used to walk to school in the snow uphill both ways. You know, back in my day, we used to focus on things that mattered. We weren't all over the Twitters. And I, I kind of thought that was what the book would be about, although more well-written because I know you. But it, it turned out that deep work is a real thing. Surprise, surprise. And I think a lot of people might be skeptical of that. So I think we can spend the rest of the show here proving not only that it exists, but why it's kind of the only thing that really matters. 
Yeah, and I think this is the key point. There's been a lot of chatter out there about distractions and are distractions bad? And I think these conversations when held in isolation is just ambiguous at best and annoying at worst. If you're just focusing on, is it bad that we're on Twitter so much? Is it bad that we use Facebook so much? It's ambiguous. Like, yeah, there's some value in these things or some things that aren't. It's, there's no clear answer there. What I'm trying to do is actually flip the conversation. See, I'm not about saying distractions are bad. I think we've forgotten, however, how valuable their opposite is. We've forgotten how much value is produced by deep work. And not only does it produce a lot of value, but it's producing an increasing amount of value. It's actually becoming increasingly valuable in our economy. So to me, that's this great opportunity that we have a skill, which I'll go through the arguments in a second, but we have a skill that I argue is becoming increasingly valuable, the ability to do deep work, at exactly the same time that it's becoming more rare. And of course, we all sense this. People are way more fragmented in their attention. People are way worse at concentrated than they've ever been. That is a classic economic mismatch. A skill that's becoming more valuable at the same time that's becoming more rare means it's being overvalued. So if you are one of the few to cultivate it, you really are going to have a massive advantage almost everyone else in the marketplace. Right. So this is essentially the skill, like a professional baseball player, the skill is so rare. That's why they're compensated so highly. So we're kind of dealing with this environment where studies are showing 30% of a worker's time is dedicated to reading and answering email. Networking tools and sites have all but ruined productivity. So if we can stay away from those distractions and work on our mental focus, we can actually become not only more productive, but more rare as a result of becoming more productive and therefore more valuable, dot, 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 profit, literally, dot, 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 compensation. No, it's, it, we're talking superstardom. I mean, some of these people have found or profiled doing this research who have really cultivated their ability to concentrate. And I want to emphasize you have to cultivate it. If you haven't been practicing concentration, you don't really know what true concentration really feels like. But the people who cultivate it, they're not just a little bit more productive than everyone else they're massively more productive. These are the people who are stars in their field. So this is not about, oh, I'll be a little bit more productive if I'm less distracted. This is instead about embracing a lifestyle, what I call the deep life, which is very hard. It's going to require some radical changes and a lot of commitment. But if done so, can transform you into a superstar in your field. The idea of focus or lack of distraction isn't the only element to deep work, though. In the book, you mentioned that the state of mental strain that accompanies the deep work is necessary to improve our abilities. I would love to know why. Is this the deliberate practice principle of getting outside your comfort zone in action? Yeah, deliberate practice is a reflection of the same underlying principle here. So there's really two big arguments for why deep work is valuable for almost everyone in the knowledge economy. You're hitting on the first of the two points, which is the better you are at deep work, the more efficiently and quickly you can learn complicated things. And we know this from both neuroscience and performance psychology, that in order to learn complicated tasks, be them cognitive or physical, you have to be able to give the task very intense, undistracted attention. So if you've really developed your ability to do deep work, you can pick up whatever that new system or idea or tool is that's going to help you get ahead. You're going to be able to pick it up real quick while your colleagues are scared of it or floundering while trying to learn it. So that's one of the two big advantages of deep work. The better you get at it, the quicker you can master complicated things. And you know this by exploring, in part, the lives of other influential figures from distant slash recent history. You can find that commitment to deep work is a very common theme among those people. It sounds like you did some research in that area. Yeah, that's right. I mean, if you find people who actually have produced things 
that matter, who do work that has real value, you're almost always going to find below it a commitment to sort of deep, intense concentration. Steve Jobs was famous for this. Bill Gates to this day still schedules deep work retreats several times a year where he takes an entire week just to think deeply so he can produce more value. Writers are, of course, famous for this. Most famous mathematical or scientific thinkers are excellent at deep work. I just published something on my blog about Edwin Land, the inventor of Polaroid and famous innovator from the early 20th century. He said in a Forbes interview in 1975 that he's been trying to convince people how much value you can get if you just teach yourself to concentrate for a very long amount of time on something important. So deep work is a thread that binds together many different figures that have been making a difference in the world. You actually argue in the book that if you spend enough time in this sort of state of frenetic shallowness, we're going from Twitter to Facebook to email, which is very familiar, too familiar to most of us, especially me, that you can ruin your ability to focus. Is this something that is permanent? Is this a change that lasts and permeates the rest of your life? And if, more importantly, is it reversible? I think it's reversible. So what we know from the research is that it certainly causes an impact. In other words, you can't separate the part of your life where you really want to focus from the part of your life where you're incredibly frenetic and not tolerating the moments full of boredom. In other words, if you spend your entire evening on Facebook and the tablet and the computer and switching back and forth between all of them at the slightest whim, then the next day when you show up at the office and say, now I want to concentrate really intensely, you're going to struggle. All right. So we know that this is the case. Now, I think it can be reversed. I, I go into this in the book that you actually have to detox in your mind from an addiction to novel stimuli. It's hard. I call that whole chapter embrace boredom because it, you're going to be bored at first. You have to regain a comfort with boredom, which means the absence of novel stimuli. You have to regain a comfort with boredom to set the foundation for retraining yourself to concentrate. So we know if most of your life is spent in fragmented attention, you are hurting your ability to concentrate when it comes time to concentrate. I think, and I have anecdotal evidence to support, that you can get that back, but it's going to be hard work. To your earlier point, remaining valuable in our economy, you have to master learning things quickly and focus will help with that. I think what people, at least younger generation, is not necessarily realizing just yet. I don't think it's just millennials. I think it's when you're young in your career, you don't necessarily realize that unless you're capable of producing something at your best, you're doing this deep work, you're a commodity, you're easy to replace. It's the opposite side of that coin of becoming more valuable. Because I think some people, and I'm very guilty of this, think, okay, well, cool, I'll focus on this deep work stuff later so I'm not replaceable. That just means, though, that right now, to put a, a fire under people's butts, if you're not doing that, there's a really, really good chance that you are a commodity and very easy to replace. This should be a real fear that I think people have in the marketplace. Am I replaceable? It almost feels like sometimes that we took the sort of whole generation of millennials and convinced them all that they're going to be social media consultants for large companies. <laughs> That's it's fine. Don't worry about it. The fact that you're connected all the time is great because you'll be valuable because you can set up Twitter accounts for companies. That's like being a light bulb changer or something. I couldn't think of anything more of a commodity in the marketplace than I can help you set up a Twitter account or figure out how to do Google advertising. So I think it's an urgent issue that if you are not working deeply now, you're not building skills, you're not producing at the level that's going to accumulate over time to get you to the place where you really have a career that's successful, that's meaningful, that you have control over. You know, a deep life is a good life. If you sidestep that, you're really going to get buffeted around. 
I wanted to highlight that simply because it is the other side of the deep work hypothesis, namely, as you state in the book, the ability to perform deep work is becoming increasingly rare at exactly the same time it is becoming increasingly valuable in our economy, as we just discussed. So as a consequence, the few who cultivate this skill and then make it the core of their working life will thrive. But the unspoken, the unstated part of that is, and those who don't are going to be really, really sorry when somebody else or a robot gets hired to do exactly what they're doing and costs next to nothing because they are completely replaceable and therefore not that valuable. And I think that's really scary because that means that people, an increasing number of people are going to lose in the new economy as their skill becomes automatable or easily outsourced. And the other side, hopefully everybody listening to this episode right now, will thrive because they are, as you say, becoming not only more rare, but more effective and have cultivated the ability to learn quicker and therefore become more effective at a faster rate. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. If you're doing something that's easily replicatable, automated, or eliminatable, that's what's going to happen. You know, I was just sitting on a panel with the founder of a major artificial intelligence startup that's actually building these AI agents that are doing an increasing amount of the work that most people spend 40, 50% of their day doing in their email inbox. He thought that, yeah, we're maybe five, 10 years away from essentially AI being able to handle inboxes on your behalf, where you no longer have to look at an inbox. They can set up meetings, find forms, get things, all that sort of back and forth that you're doing, they can do on your behalf. So, you know, sit back and ask yourself, if you took away email from me in my day, I mean, you took away social media, would I be able to fill my day? What would I be doing with my day? And if you don't have an answer there that is, yeah, that means I could do more of X and X is incredibly valuable and I'm good at it, you know, you're in trouble. So deep work focuses the new IQ. Maybe that's the right way to summarize it. Oh, I like that. What's going to be the big differentiating factor in the 21st century is going to be those who can focus and those who cannot. So how much focus do we need? Because everyone's getting scared, and rightfully so. Yeah, well, so here's the thing about deep work, and here's the good news about it. It's very different than busyness. You can't spend 15 hours a day concentrating intensely. Your mind just can't handle that. So if you're very good at deep work, it means in a relatively limited amount of time per day, you can produce a relatively large amount of value. And this is why if you study adept deep workers, you see these are not people who tend to be necessarily overloaded or working late at night or busy all the time. It's completely different from that type of lifestyle. So what I think is important with deep work is that A, you cultivate your ability to concentrate deeply just like you would cultivate your physical fitness if you wanted to be a marathon runner. And then B, you have sort of regular routines and rituals to keep deep work as a sort of significant, and frequent occurrence in your typical work week. So are we talking about five hours a day, one hour a day? Is there a number that you've come up with or is it very varied? (laughs) Yeah, well, it depends on what you do for a living and what other demands you have. So, you know, at one extreme, you have people who do nothing but deep work, like professional fiction writers, and they'll do five hours a day every day and that's it. On the other hand, you have people who are maybe in a management position and they have to balance their deep work time with other obligations they can't get out of. So maybe it's more like five to 10 hours a week but they're really intense deep hours. So how much you do can depend on the realities of your job. But the better you are at it, the more you're going to get out of it. And you need it happening on a regular basis. What about people who are now trying to figure out why they're the exception to this rule? Like, oh, well, you know what? I'm always going to be in demand because I can code or I'm always going to be in demand because I have management experience. You mentioned that there are three groups that will have a particular advantage in the new economy. Let's talk about that. Yeah, so the 
economists are starting to reach a consensus on you know who's going to be the winner in the new economy. One of these three groups that's identified are those who are superstars. So those who can produce at an elite level in whatever field they're at. That absolutely requires deep work. Without deep work, you can't get to elite levels of skills. Without deep work, you can't produce actually at an elite level. The other group that's going to do really well are people who are very comfortable working with the increasingly complicated machines that are playing a bigger role in our actual economy. Well, to keep up with these technologies that are rapidly changing and getting more complicated, you got to be learning hard things really quick. Well, we already went over that. Deep work is what allows you to do that. The type of systems and machines you need to work with to be competitive in this economy, it's not like Google. It's not a search box you just type into, here's what I want. It's These are complicated, complicated technologies. And so those who can do deep work are those who can really thrive in those two groups. If you're uncomfortable with deep work, you're going to fall behind in those two groups. There's a lot of people thinking, well, you know what, I'm just going to earn a lot of money or I'm just going to learn how to work creatively with intelligent machines. And is that a good strategy or is that tough to bank on? Well, you're not going to be able to earn a lot of money if you can't actually do things that are rare and valuable. You're probably not going to be able to do things that are rare and valuable unless you're really adept at deep work. There's just not a lot of exceptions to this. You say, well, I'll be up with using these new machines. They're really hard to learn how to use. Are you comfortable with artificial intelligence? Are you comfortable with statistical machine learning? Are you comfortable with sort of advanced non-relational database design? All the technologies there are different now than they were three years ago and different three years ago than they were five years before that. They require ever-shifting knowledges of mathematics and engineering, computer programming languages to change every few years. I mean, this stuff is hard. This is an economy that's going to reward people who are comfortable doing hard concentration on things that matter. And you do not want to be one of the numbed masses that is just receiving clickbait little treats so that their attention can be mined and sold for pennies to advertisers all day until you look up one day and your boss says, hey, we have a bot now that can move emails around, set up meetings, we don't need you anymore. You don't want to be that person. You want to be the person on the other end that says, I can produce real bank for you, for your company, for myself, for the society. I can do this. It took me years of training to get here. You know, I kick ass at it. And it's worth demonstrably a lot of value. That's where you need to be. And that's what the deep life gets you. All right, when we get back, I wanna talk about the myth of multitasking, or maybe not the myth of multitasking, CEOs and other high-performing people who may be the exception to the deep work hypothesis. This is The Art of Charm. Over the last 17 years, we have launched our fair share of online courses, coaching programs, and finding the right platform has always been a challenge. They say if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. But if you're an entrepreneur, you know the hard work that comes with it. That's why you need Kajabi. Kajabi makes it easy to run your entire online business from one platform so you can focus on what you love, creating. Kajabi is the ultimate all-in-one platform that helps creators and entrepreneurs build successful online businesses by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. No matter your niche, Kajabi makes it easy to turn your skills, passions, and experiences into enriching online courses, exclusive membership sites, subscription podcasts, thriving communities, personalized coaching, and more. The best part? Kajabi doesn't cut into your revenue because everything is owned and controlled by you. So keep 100% of what you earn. And with Kajabi, you also get robust analytics, easy payment options, email marketing tools, and customizable website templates all built in. You don't even need a huge audience to make sustainable income. There are thousands of creators on Kajabi making six and seven figures with less than 50,000 followers. 
Right now, Kajabi is offering a free 30-day trial to start your business if you go to kajabi.com slash charm. That's K-A-J-A-B-I dot com slash charm. Go to kajabi.com slash charm and join the creators and entrepreneurs who have made over $7 billion. Johnny, we know if you listen to the show, you are driven. In fact, we're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to recent Indeed survey. We have hired a lot of team members over the last 17 years. Going through endless resumes, well, that's a time sink. But you know what else is a time sink? Interviewing endless people, because they're all going to give you the best face forward. That's why we love Indeed, leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash charm. Just go to indeed.com slash charm right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash charm. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. All right, we are back with Cal Newport, author of Deep Work and AOC Favorite here, talking about having the smarts to focus and why those people that can create deep work and focus deeply will be the superstars in the new economy. I'd love to hear more about the idea of absurdly productive people who think that they multitask, if that even exists. I mean, we know guys like Adam Grant, who we spoke about before the show, he does a ridiculous amount of intellectual property that he creates for his university. How does he work? Because it seems like he must be doing a lot of things at once. Yeah, Adam Grant's secret, which I go into detail in the book because he's a professor like me, he's a year older than me, and he's incredibly more successful than me. So he's the, he's the youngest full professor at the Wharton School of Business. So, you know, I was particularly interested in leveraging my status as an author to actually get professor productivity tips from Adam. That was the secret motivation to this whole book. So I know a lot about how he actually does his work. And at the key of his absurd academic productivity is embrace of deep work. He'll talk about this explicitly, that he understands that work done with intensity and unbroken concentration is going to produce more for him per hour than any other type of effort. And what Adam actually does is he works on his academic papers in these long, multi-day bursts of deep work. So he'll take a two, three-day long period, go completely off the grid, put on the same out-of-office responders he would if he was traveling internationally, and does nothing in that time but work on whatever current step he's at with that research project. And then he comes back to the world and he's available again and you can the students come in and he's doing the give and take stuff. He's very accessible after that. And then he'll go away for another three days, completely off the grid, deep concentration. 
I did the math. He's probably not spending more hours per year than the standard professor at an elite business university, but he's publishing almost a factor of two more high quality journal papers than the average professor at an elite business university because he's using deep work when he works on these papers. So he's getting way more returns per hour spent on this key activity. Why can't we just multitask to do little bits of work in small chunks that then later add up to bigger chunks of work? Yeah, well, you know, multitasking died as a concept. In the early 2000s, late 90s, there's this notion that you can do several things simultaneously, like literally simultaneously, be on the phone while doing an email, while being in a meeting or something like this. I'm juggling right now and I feel like we're doing fine. <laughs> that's, <laughs> yeah, that's right. I've been writing the whole time we've been talking. Right, good. I'll give you the research. So the research, especially out of Stanford that came out in the 2000s, established that doesn't work. Okay, so when you're trying to do multiple things, literally simultaneously, you're doing each of the things worse. You're kind of, you're doing a little bit of this and switching to this, switching to this, and you're doing them worse. So I feel like in the last five or six years, there's been a shift and people say, okay, I don't literally multitask anymore. I try to sort of stick with one thing and then do something else. But what people are still doing is what I call the quick checks. So they're mainly doing one thing. They're mainly, let's say, writing something. But every 10 or 15 minutes, they do a quick check of the email inbox or a quick check of what's on the phone or a quick check of Politico because, you know, it's the election season. You got to see what's going on. But they're mainly working on this one thing. Well, we now know from research that those quick checks also have a devastating impact on your ability to actually produce at your full cognitive capacity. Every time you change your attention, even briefly to another target, like an email inbox, that shift in attention leaves behind a residue that researchers call attention residue that reduces your cognitive capacity for up to 20 to 30 minutes after that switch happens. So the way that most knowledge workers work today is with these constant quick checks. That means most knowledge workers are working with a severe impairment on their cognitive capacity. Almost no one is getting to the Adam Grant-style level of full cognitive engagement that they're actually capable of because you don't have to be doing things simultaneously to be less productive. Even to have the occasional shift of attention is enough to keep your brain from really getting wrapped up. So basically, every time we switch to, and this is where I discovered it, AOL Instant Messenger. Remember that? You get a message, you're like, oh, just check that real quick. And then you go back and you're like, wait, where was I in this email? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That adds up over time to hours and hours and hours, but it's not just where's my place in this book? What was I writing or what was I saying? This is something that's lasting and persisting in your mind, bringing you back out into essentially shallow work, at least out of focus. Yeah, your cognitive performance is reduced for a significant period to follow, which is why. I think it is absurd, for example, in the light of this research, that you can go to a large computer development shop, go to a Google or a Facebook, where people are writing computer code, an incredibly cognitively demanding task, and you hook them up to Slack so that you're ensuring that there is a constant stream of things that is giving them quick checks and, and changes in their attention. So what you're doing is you're hiring and paying a lot of money for people to use their brain to produce incredibly complicated output and then you're taking their brain and putting this massive permanent impairment on its operation. It just doesn't make sense to me. To me, it's like going into an assembly line 
and saying, well, we dim the lights really dim to save money on the electric bill. Now, of course, the workers can't really see the assembly line very well. So they're making all sorts of mistakes and our production is down by 50%. But man, we're saving $100 a month on our electric bill because the lights are low. This is what I think is happening in knowledge work. You know, we want a little bit more convenience or it makes people's lives a little bit easier if everyone's reachable, but we're missing the forest for the trees. And we're hiring people to use their brain to produce value. And then we're doing everything we can to minimize the value they're actually able to produce. So open office spaces, you're not a fan? No, open office space, it doesn't make sense to me. Again, the main capital investment in knowledge work is the brains you're hiring. You're paying a lot of money to bring these brains into your nice air-conditioned offices and to pay for all these benefits so that those brains can take in information and produce valuable things. If you put them in an open office, if you put them in a culture of constant email, if you put them in front of a Slack window, you're not taking care of your capital investment. It's just like buying a million-dollar robot for your factory and then forgetting to oil it and you know whatever else you do to keep robots running so that it's working at 20% of its capacity and, and six of the robotic arms are broken. That's what we're doing in the knowledge workplace, and I don't think everyone recognizes that yet. So what about, speaking of attention residue and focus, what about people like CEOs and other high-performing people who are indisputably high-performing, who obviously must multitask much more than they actually focus. Yeah, there are definitely valued positions in the economy in which deep work's not relevant. And I think CEO, especially of a large company, is an example of that. So, you know, I have a chapter called What About Jack Dorsey, where I use profiles to reconstruct a typical day in the life of Jack Dorsey. The cliff note summary is there's not a lot of deep work going on in that typical day. It's an incredibly like frenzied, fragmented attention type setup. But I argue for a CEO, that's actually better. It's actually more profitable for the company to have the CEO hire people to do deep work, bring the results to him and have him make a decision consistent with some vision for the company. That's actually more valuable. So there's positions in which deep work is not relevant and positions that are valued. But what I found working on this book is that there's way more people that think they're in one of those positions than there actually are in the world. Everyone thinks they're in that position. Yeah, it's a lot fewer positions than you would think. I think CEOs, yes, they're in this position. If you're in sales, yes, you're in this position. If you're in like lobbying, yes, deep work is not what's going to be relevant there. It's all about relationships. But almost everything else, you're going to do better with deep work than without it. I think the key here is that the CEO, the Jack Dorsey example that you give in the book, their work is neither low value nor easy to replicate. In other words, basically the necessary distraction that these executives face in their work lives are very, very specific to their particular position. And a good CEO, a good CTO, whatever, is essentially an impossible slash really, really hard to automate decision engine. It's not just somebody who gets distracted all the time instead of focusing on something. Yeah, that's right. What they're doing is not easily replicatable. So this is true of high-level leadership. You know, a big part of the hard-to-replicate value is that you need some sort of consistent source of vision and information that can be making lots of decisions so that those decisions get made in a way that leads a company towards a common goal. But you hit the key point, hard-to-replicate. So when a lot of people say, well, in my job, you know, I really got to be in touch with my clients all the time, or it's important that I keep up with my team all the time. That type of keeping up with your client, keeping up with your team, that's not so hard to replicate. And it's not the case that maybe your job really depends on it. Often when people say my job requires non-deep work, what they really mean is my job, the way I run it now doesn't give me any time for deep work. But it doesn't mean that you couldn't do what you do even better if you radically rethought it to focus on depth. 
So I think this is very important to sort of file down to a fine point because a lot of people go, okay, great, you know, I'm an entrepreneur, I'm basically Jack Dorsey. One, you're not Jack Dorsey, but two, you don't get to be there by emulating these people's distraction. And I think that's important to note because I can imagine a lot of people saying, well, if I just keep answering all my clients' emails and doing the decision engine thing, I'll get better at being a decision engine. But you end up with the distraction by becoming a person of their value who is the only one able to make that amount of high value decisions. You don't become that person or end up with the distraction because you decided to get really distracted and micromanage all the elements of your business. Yeah, and it's important to remember that it's really the state of deep work that allows you to accumulate new and valuable skills. So if you start with no deep work, you're not accumulating skills. So your value is not increasing in the marketplace. So if you say, I'm a good client manager, I'm just easy to be reached, you can reach my email anytime, it keeps my clients happy, you're doing nothing that's building up a hard to replicate skill. And so you don't have an accumulation of skill, you've just kept yourself at a plateau where you just have to make yourself indispensable as best as you can, and then at some point you'll be replaced. So I think you're really hitting the key point here, which is painstakingly building skills requires deep work, but that's the only thing that's really going to give you true autonomy and, say, an impact in the marketplace. Yeah, it's really easy to fall into the fallacy, as you state in the book, just because your current habits make deep work really, really hard doesn't mean that the lack of depth in your work is fundamental to doing your job well. Yeah, let me give you two quick examples to try to drive that home. So, you know, one example I give, it was a standard small business owner, technology, web type business, lots of clients, right? Consulting, electronic consulting firm, tons of emails, right? She's constantly was spending emails, talking with clients, communicating with clients. And at some point she said, this is what I spend all my time doing. This is the only way we're communicating. This is it. I've had enough. No more email. I don't have email anymore. So what happened? Well, they put together a client management system. They built an extranet. They had to put in a process. They had a client management system. They had to put some more systems into place. But it turned out the clients were fine with that. In fact, they preferred it. They preferred the structure of having this much more thought-through structured process for learning about the project and communicating about the project, these regular check-ins. They preferred it than the chaos they had before where they felt like if they weren't just constantly having this ad hoc unstructured conversation that maybe the project wouldn't get done or things wouldn't get off the chain. So she was able to eliminate that huge, massive part of her workday, that sort of constant communication. And by doing so, her clients got happier. She could make more money and keep them easier. So this is a classic example of someone who might say, no, no, my job just requires constant communication. My clients demand it. But when she stepped back and said, no, they're not paying for communication, they're paying for results, and there's different systems that could get me to good results, suddenly radical changes were possible. So if we know all this, Cal, why the hell are companies moving away from deep work? Why don't companies know better and viciously protect their employees' time and focus? Why are we looking at open floor plans and meetings here? I mean, I got friends that work at places like Twitter, and I looked at their calendar, it's literally back-to-back meetings. I think he says he gets all of his work done at the last two hours of the day because he stays later than everyone else. The whole day is meetings, and he's a sales guy. He's literally the last person that should be called to any of these. Yeah, well, here's my theory, that it is hard, at least in knowledge work, to measure the positive benefits of more deep work. It's also hard to directly measure the negative impacts of a more fragmented, shallow attention type culture. This is just a general property of knowledge work. It is very difficult to take anyone or any process and measure its marginal productivity in the way that would be easy if we're talking about producing widgets on an assembly line. 
So I call this the metric black hole. We don't have good metrics about what's building more value and what's taking away more value. And I think once you get rid of those metrics, our human nature is going to push us towards cultures and tools and behaviors that are hostile to deep work. If you're reachable all the time by email or Slack, that's more convenient in the moment. We're always going to prioritize convenience if we don't have some sort of larger outside metric pushing back on us. If my knowledge work job, like so many, is somewhat ambiguous, I can't really nail down, I do this and here's how well I do it, then the more busy I look, the more visibly productive I look. So I'm going to try to chime in on email threads. I'm going to try to be more more noticeable. There's a professor at the Harvard Business School, Leslie Perlau, who did this interesting study of the Boston Consulting Group. And she called it the cycle of connectivity, but she found that the culture at BCG of you have to answer an email within 20 minutes, sort of any time of day, had arisen out of this cycle, this ad hoc undirected cycle that was emergent, that no one had ever decided that was a good idea. No one particularly thought it was a good idea. No one was demanding it. It had just arisen emergently. And suddenly you had a thousand person organization that was all stuck in this trap for no real good reason. So for lots of reasons like that, once you can't measure directly what brings value and what takes it away, you've ungrounded the circuit and it's going to drift inevitably towards the type of things we see now, which is this incredibly convenient, but massively sort of uncomfortable, fragmented, crazy attention type environment. Right, so without metrics, we end up going towards the path of least resistance, which is instead of planning a deep work block or focusing on something really tough, cognitively demanding or or intense, we go, I guess I'll just check my email right now because I don't know what I'm doing here. And you end up with that times 1,500 employees or whatever. Yeah, and we're obsessed right now with convenience, which I think is a huge problem because we know this from the history of work in other sectors. Convenience for employees is irrelevant to how much value you produce and how much you're going to actually enjoy your job. So I like to actually point to the assembly line as a great example. The assembly line was an incredibly inconvenient way to build cars. It sucked for the employees probably as compared to the piecemeal method they were using before. It required overhead and processes, and you had to think a lot more about your work and how the work was going to happen in the day. There was a lot more rules and hard edges. You had to hire more managers, but you know what? It produced a 10x times multiplier of value than any other method. And I think that's where we're going to get with knowledge work. Yeah, it's convenient if we all just sit in our inboxes and figure things out on the fly with a bunch of email messages, but that doesn't mean that that's going to be the most valuable way to work. When we get back, I wanna talk about some of the neurological effects of focus and how focus can actually make us happier, not just more productive. This is The Art of Charm. All right, we're back with Cal Newport talking about the neurological effects of focus, or at least that's what I wanna get into now. I think that a lot of us are using in our companies things like busyness as a proxy for productivity because we don't have the right metrics. Tech distractions are all over the place. I'd love to talk about some of the neurological effects of focus because I think that a lot of us who are thinking, well, I can't do that, there's no point, or I'll do it later once I X, Y, Z, and then it'll be fine. It sounds suspiciously like I'm gonna focus on happiness after I launch my website, or I'll focus on networking after I get my business off the ground. Focus is just one of those things that becomes really tough to do because we don't know what the results are gonna be other than more productivity, and if we already think we're productive, we might brush it aside. This is something that surprised me. You know, I was working on the book, the original concept that was just gonna be about the economic benefits of deep work, because that's what I had seen, that's what I had been researching, and as I was diving into it in the book, 
I kept coming across evidence for why a life committed to depth, forget productivity, is just a better life. It's more meaningful. It's more satisfying. It's significantly less anxious. I ended up writing a whole chapter on this that was not a part of my original book proposal because I was finding these threads from philosophy, from psychology, from neuroscience, from all different fields, these different threads that all came together to sort of weave the same message, which is a deep life is not just a more productive life. It's actually a really good way to live. And that was the icing on the cake for me, right? I mean, productivity is great, but if you can get me a life that I just enjoy better on a day-to-day, now you really have my attention. How does focus then make us happier? How does focus make us get into flow easier? And things that you state in the book, these are exciting developments that I think a lot of us who think we're already productive, we might wanna reconsider this knowing that it's actually gonna improve our quality of life, not just our quality of work. Right. Well, there's a positive and negative factor that both helps make your life more satisfying if you do deep work. Right. So the positive is the more time you spend doing intense concentration, the more time you do spend, as you mentioned, slipping into a flow state. And now a flow state where you're completely locked in at something that's using your skills in a way that's challenging but not too challenging, what we know from decades of research now is an incredibly pleasurable state. So if you are spending much more of your day doing deep work, you're going to spend much more of your day in this state that we're essentially wired for, right? That's evolutionary theory. If it feels good, there's probably being rewarded for it. So we're wired for that type of focus. Then there's the negative side, which is the more you spend your day with fragmented attention, we're not wired for that. It creates a sense of anxiety and dissatisfaction. You know, I was talking with a head of mental health. So the person who's in charge of mental health services for a large university where I was giving a talk. And what she told me was they saw this major shift happening right around the time that smartphones really took off and social media really became ubiquitous. Instead of having a large assortment of different issues of the students who came in with complaining of, you know, mental health issues, the normal large range of different issues, anxiety overtook it all anxiety-related depression, swamped out everything else they were seeing, and the number of students they were seeing skyrocketed past you know any proportion they'd ever seen before. The reason being is our brain is not wired for this type of constant back-and-forth fragmented attention. So I tell people, you're probably walking around with this background hum of anxiety that you've just become used to, that you just think this is what it feels like to be alive, and unless I'm drinking heavily or on some sort of drug, this is how I'm going to feel that background level of anxiety actually might be completely avoidable and something that could be significantly reduced if you just let your brain quiet down and get back to more present, deep, contemplative focus on one thing at a time, the type of behavior it's meant to. That type of anxiety we all feel is like the check engine light. That means you know, you're running your cognitive vehicle, you're running it wrong. The right thing to do there is not to put on the radio so loud that you can't hear it, it's to actually get the oil changed. And in some sense, that's what deep work does for you. All right, so I think we've sold everyone on this. Obviously, I was sold the second I read you know, chapter one of your book here. How do we start to create a habit of deep work? Because there's a lot of things out there that do distract us, that do seem productive. Yeah, well, there's really active things you can do and passive things, and it's important to keep both in mind. So the active type of things you can do to get better at deep work are the, what you might expect, the type of exercises you might do to actively increase your ability to concentrate. But I think it's worth starting at the passive side of this equation because this is the piece that a lot of people miss, which is 
you have to lay a foundation in your mind. You have to lay a foundation in your life to make deep concentration possible. Just like if you wanted to start doing triathlons, there would be a lot of changes to your lifestyle you have to make. You'd have to stop eating junk food. You'd have to stop staying up late and drinking heavily five times a week. You would make a lot of changes in your life that was in addition to the specific training you do for the marathon or the triathlon. The same is true with deep work, that before you actually just train yourself to focus more, you have to create a lifestyle that's conducive to a life of the mind. And there's a lot of things involved with that. But for example, you got to be careful about what tools you let into your life, right? You don't want things in your life that's going to be like cognitive junk food. And you're probably going to have to get a lot more used to being bored a lot more because your brain needs to get pushed into a mode where it's comfortable not having stimuli coming at it all the time. So how do we make a selection of these tools, right? I mean, look, maybe we do generate business from Twitter or maybe we do generate business from email and Facebook. Most of us don't, right? But how do we decide which tools to use and which ones are junk? The key thing to do is to get past what I call the any benefit mindset for tool selection. So the any benefit mindset is where you say, if this tool can bring me any conceivable value, or if there's anything conceivably I might miss out by not using it, that is reason enough to use the tool. This is more or less how most knowledge workers, at least knowledge workers under a certain age, triage the different attention requesting tools in their life. They say, oh, it might be kind of fun to use Snapchat or, you know, hey, wait a second. There's some tweets I see on Twitter that are funny. So like, I think I should probably use Twitter. That's the any benefit mindset. In almost any other context where people are doing skilled labor, that mindset is absurd. That mindset's absurd. So I even interviewed a farmer in my book to say, hey, talk to me about how you choose tools to use on your farm, for example. And he was like, well, of course, there's thousands of tools that have some value. You're not going to sell something in that value. But if I tried to use them all, I'd go bankrupt. And the same, I think, is true with tools that are trying to actually lay claim to your time and attention. So you have to abandon that any benefit mindset and instead adopt what I call the craftsman mindset, where you actually say, does this tool add substantial value to things that are very important to me. And unless it crosses that high bar, it doesn't get a moment of my time and attention. So you need a much higher threshold before you allow something into your life and into your cognitive world. Are there different types of focus? In the book, you'd mentioned that there's different types of ways for us to set this up in our lives. I'd love to discuss actually how we can ingrain these into our habits and how we even select which type of deep work or focus we want to embrace because there are different choices for different lifestyles and maybe different brain types if that's a thing and I'd love to dive into that because for me looking at some of the ways that you work I'm just thinking oh my gosh can I even do that is that even feasible with my career the answer was yes to a few after a little resistance but there were some where I just thought I can't reorganize my entire life to make this happen yeah so it's important that you know you avoid the one size fits all mindset when it comes to contemplating how deep work might integrate into your life. So, you know, I actually go through a lot of trouble to highlight multiple different styles that I observed for how people integrate deep work into their professional life so that it's clear that there's options out there. So, for example, on one end of the spectrum of options, there's the monastic approach to deep work, which is where you essentially try to eliminate everything from your life except deep work. Not a lot of people can pull this off. The people who can tend to be professional fiction writers. That's the most common example. So they can get away with saying, you know what? You just can't reach me. I don't care. I just want to write my books. All right, so that's one extreme. But there's other options. So then there's what I call the bimodal approach. Now, this is what Adam Grant did, what we talked about earlier, where sometimes you're just accessible, doing your normal thing. And then there's periods of one to two to three days where 
you're inaccessible and you're doing nothing but concentrating really deeply. Bill Gates does the same thing with his Think Weeks. All right, that fits a lot of people in your position who have a lot on their plate, but also a lot of economy about their time. You know, you don't have a boss you have to convince that you're going to be gone for Friday. You can actually do that. You control your schedule. There's also the rhythmic method, which is where you take the same time, the same day, same time every week. And that's just when you do your deep work. So you don't have to think about it. You don't have to have any willpower. It's just I do it first thing in the morning on Monday, Wednesday, Fridays, or I do it on, you know, Tuesday afternoons or whatever it is. And then there's the journalistic philosophy, which is where you look at your weekly schedule, you see where there's holes, you grab those holes, you protect them like you would any other appointment or meeting, and you make sure that there's enough deep work in your week. So there's a variety of different ways you can integrate in this. You don't have to go live in a cave. And it's important to know that you do have options when it comes to adding more depth to your life. You mentioned also in the book practicing switching into deep work from shallow work and how that process doesn't necessarily come very naturally. I'd love to know how to make the shift or help people develop a regimen to help make that shift happen because for me, that's what I do find a little difficult. Yes, I constantly feel the the sort of cognitive pull of email and Twitter. I can ignore that to a certain degree, but it does get really hard, especially if I'm in a new environment and things like that, and it becomes really difficult to schedule, even in the first place. Yes, this is why you need both routines and rituals. So you need some sort of routine for how the deep work gets scheduled. So you're not having to just make a decision moment to moment. Do I want to do deep work now? And then when it comes time to do deep work, rituals really help. If you have some sort of ritual you do to get started in the deep work session, if you then have a set list of rules that are 100% non-negotiable for your deep work session, such as if I glance at my phone or glance at email inbox, the session doesn't count. I'm just going to stop. Right? You have to have non-negotiable rules. And then a ritual to sort of wrap up the deep work session is going to end at this point. I'm going to do this ritual when it's done. The reason why those are so common among people who take deep work seriously is that deep work is really hard. And you need all the help you can get to avoid having to just expend tons of willpower to slip into a deep work mode. So having routines for your scheduling, rituals you do to get into it, rules during the session... All of this is about facing the reality that deep work is an incredibly demanding task. Your mind is going to try to get out of it if it can. So you have to build up all of those structures if you're going to accomplish it on a regular basis. You mentioned also switching into the deep work from the shallow work in a way that's reliable. How is that shift different from just multitasking? Well, so the shift should be some sort of actual ritual or behavior you do every time that you start deep work so that your mind is being told this is what's happening now we're transferring to a deep work mode. So it might be you have a 10-minute walk you do before you start deep work that ends up back at a different location than you do most of your work, maybe where your computer is not there. And you have a certain thing you do with the lights and you leave your phone on a certain place and you put on the timer that's going to go off when the session's over. You have some ritual like that. This is really all for the benefit of your mind. So your mind says, ah, I know what program that we're about to execute here. I understand what I need to do. And it's going to shut down and quiet those parts of the mind that would otherwise be completely second-guessing and questioning. Wait, what are we doing? Should we check our email? What's on Twitter? And it allows you to slip much more easily into a deep work mode. There's also the grand gesture, which I thought was pretty funny. My friend Peter Shankman also mentioned in your book, he had a grand gesture. I would love for you to mention this because I don't know if this would work for everybody because sometimes it can be borderline ridiculous. However, sometimes it does require something patently ridiculous in order to get us to switch modes. Yeah, Peter's story is crazy. I think he had a book deadline and he was really procrastinating on it. So what he did was he booked a business class ticket to Tokyo 
He flew to Tokyo riding the whole time because there's no internet on international transoceanic flights, right? So there's no email, no distractions. So he could just deep work. Had an espresso at the Tokyo airport, got on a return flight, flew back, wrote the whole way back. 36 hours, he produced a draft of the full book. So he pulled this grand gesture to try to really jumpstart his mind into the maximum level of depth. And this is something that I see come up common when I study deep workers, is that if something's really important, sometimes you have to do something big to tell yourself, hey, I'm pretty serious about the need to concentrate here. Maybe you don't have to fly to Tokyo and back, but you know, spending a day in the woods working on or reading something, booking a hotel room somewhere, just so you can be completely cut off from your normal environment, something like that, it can really make a big difference. I think I'm gonna book a bed and breakfast in Half Moon Bay and just zero out my inbox or something like that, nothing else around, or just read entire books that come my way. Maybe I should do readcations where I just go somewhere where there's no internet and just read the entire time and leave my phone in the room. I think these types of things might work. I mean, this isn't just for weirdos like you and me and Peter Shankman. There's a lot of people who are well known because of their deep work, frankly, that do things like this. Didn't J.K. Rowling do something like this when she wrote Harry Potter? Yeah, it was for the last Harry Potter book. She found that her life at her house, so that she built this nice house in Edinburgh, But, you know, as you get sort of more rich and more famous, like more stuff is going on. And she found that there was cleaning crews and then her husband was in, the kids were around and then people were always coming by and contractors, they were building this on the house. And she realized she couldn't concentrate anymore at her house. And then she realized, wait a second, I'm rich. I could actually spend money on this problem. So what she did was she rented, I think it was $1,000 a night. I looked it up at some point, suite at the Balmore Hotel in downtown Edinburgh, which is like a famous old style, I think it's 19th century sort of ornate Rococo stone building that is down the street from Edinburgh Castle, which was like her visual inspiration for Hogwarts, you know, just the perfect location to write a book about wizards. And she just paid the money to rent this hotel, just so she could say, I'm going here to write. And that told her mind, okay, this is concentration time, I'm spending $1,000 a day to be here, we're going to concentrate. And that's how she actually finished the final Harry Potter book. Nice, I wonder what her book advance was for that book. Probably did all right on that one, regardless of the expenditure. She probably broke even. I would hope she did better than that. (laughs) Excellent. I would love to talk about lead measures versus lag measures. Now it's kind of a little bit of a jump, but we do need to be able to measure our results. Otherwise, deep work could be all for naught, or we could just be doing shallow work and calling it deep work because we rented a hotel room. Can you discuss these two measurements? Because this is a huge game-changing insight when you get these things handled. Yeah, so I mean, the notion of lead and lag measures comes out of the Covey and Company Consulting Group. And they've used this with thousands of corporate clients that they've worked with. And they made, I think, a very important distinction. So when you're trying to do something successfully, we're used to measuring what they call lag measures, which are the traditional metrics of whether or not you succeeded. So their example might be they're working with a supermarket chain and they want their customers to be more satisfied. So they get these customer satisfaction results to come back once a month or what have you, and they want those to go up. That's the lag measure. And what they noted is that it's very hard to manage practically from lag measures, right? It's very hard to take something like we want our customer satisfaction to go up. That doesn't directly inform what you should do day to day to change that. So they noted what's really important is what they call lead measures, which are things that you can measure immediately such that the more you do or the better measurements you get, 
the more positive effect you're probably going to have on the lag measure. And it's the lead measures that you should be tracking because you can see those results on a day-to-day basis. The lead measures can be pushing back on your behavior every day. So they said, for example, in the customer service example, the relevant lead measure is how many customers did you actually say you know, hello to and greet personally when they came in the store? That's something you can measure and it can inform your actions day to day. And you can say, oh, I want that measure to be higher today. And then you do more action. And in the end, the lag measure goes up. Well, when it comes to high quality output in knowledge work, I argue that hours of deep work done, that's your key lead measure. That's what you can measure day to day, week by week, and that can have an actual influence on your behavior every day, which is how many hours of deep work did I do? It's something you can measure and try to improve. And down the line, that's going to improve all of the lag measures that you care about in your profession. Thanks so much, Cal. Is there anything that I haven't asked you that you want to make sure that you deliver to the AOC family? The two things I want to note is, you know, one, I think the point has come through really clearly in the interview that deep work and a deep life is not about being a little bit more productive. It's actually a better way to live. It's just a more meaningful, satisfying way to live. And if there's one more piece of information I want to give out there is unless your job absolutely demands it, unless you're actually like Jordan running a media company or a company that's trying to sell something to a large audience, consider quitting social media. I've never had a social media account. Nothing bad has ever happened. You know, I I still have friends. I still know what's going on in the world. I think I've probably taken my day-to-day anxiety down three rungs on a 10-point scale. So that's the one thing I want to add that we didn't get to in the interview is you're allowed to do that. And nothing bad happens if you do. And there's a lot of good that does. So keep that possibility in mind when you're thinking about what you may or may not do to try to embrace more depth in your life. Thanks so much. This has been excellent. And hopefully afterwards, people will be able to create deep work in their working life and hell, in their personal life for things they wanna do that don't involve work. If you're a painter or writer or something like that, I think a lot of folks find it tough to make time for hobbies as well. And it's just as important there as it is in your professional career. Yeah, that's right. I mean, anything that's valuable to you is better if done deeply. This is such a great show. Cal's just one of those bomb guests that never disappoints. His book is excellent. That's linked in the show notes. I highly recommend checking it out. We barely scratch the surface when we do these deep dives into some of this stuff. I think at the end of the day, there's this uneasiness that surrounds deep work. It surrounds any effort to produce the best things that you're capable of producing because it really forces us to confront the very real possibility that your best work is not yet that good, and that's scary, and I think that's why a lot of people avoid deep work in the first place, not just the distraction that's tearing us away, but the fear that maybe we can't do what we wanna do and produce what we want to produce. If you enjoyed this one, don't forget to thank Cal on Twitter. Just kidding, he's not on Twitter, if you were listening carefully, but I am. I'm at The Art of Charm, and feel free to infinitely distract me, because that's why I'm there. I love to interact with y'all on Twitter. You can also find our sponsors at theartofcharm.com slash advertisers, and don't forget about The Art of Charm Challenge at theartofcharm.com slash challenge, or text charmed, that's C-H-A-R-M-E-D, to 33444. That challenge, it's all about improving your networking, connection skills, inspiring people around you to develop a connection with you. We'll also email you our fundamentals toolbox, that's what I mentioned earlier on the show, and I do weekly videos with drills and exercises to help you move forward every single week. The challenge will make you a better networker, it'll make you a better connector, and it'll make you a better 
thinker. That's at theartofcharm.com slash challenge or text charmed to 33444. This episode of The Art of Charm was produced by Jason DeFilippo. Jason Sanderson is our audio engineer and editor. Show notes on the website are by Robert Fogarty, and I'm your host, Jordan Harbinger. Go ahead and tell your friends, because the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to someone else, either in person or shared on the web. Now stay charming and leave everything and everyone better than you found them. Hey, and don't forget about MeUndies. Shipping's free in the US and Canada. You can save up to eight bucks a pair with the MeUndies subscription plan. Highly recommended. I know it sounds ridiculous to subscribe to underwear, but it is cool getting a new pair every month. The designs are cool, and you can retire those old ones. You know what I'm talking about. Jason, am I the only person that has underwear in their drawer where you're like, oh, these have to go, but there's no holes yet. Am I just weird, or do we have an aversion as human males to just keep underwear way too long? Oh yeah, we've all got old pair that we don't want anybody to ever see. Right, they're like ratty and it's just, why do I have this? You will start to be able to retire that because I don't wanna go buy new underwear, right? But if MeUndies is shipping them to my door, I can get rid of the ones that are kind of on their death knell. Trust me, totally worth it. 20% off your first order when you go to MeUndies.com slash charm. That's MeUndies.com slash charm for 20% off your first order. I highly recommend the subscription. Again, if you don't like it, you can return it. So there's really nothing to lose here. Get 20% off a subscription, totally worth it. Let me know what you think of your new draws. All right, see you next time. Thanks for listening to The Art of Charm. Get more confidence, relationship skills, life hacks, and more at theartofcharmpodcast.com.